good in our Lord Jesus Christ last week when we considered Lord's Day 6, we were introduced to the concept of redemption. Redemption, strictly speaking, refers to a historical event that centers on a historical person. The historical event took place around 2,000 years ago on a little hill outside Jerusalem. The historical person is Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified on that little hill as the Christ of God. The death of Jesus Christ was not just a death, it was a payment, a payment that he made as the representative and head of his people in order to reconcile them unto God. This historical event sometimes is called redemption accomplished. It is accomplished in that it is a past event. Jesus made the payment by the shedding of his blood. And before he died, he declared, it is finished. The mission of redemption that Jesus was sent to do, therefore, is mission accomplished. Today, Lord's Day 7, is still on the topic of redemption. But the question we face here is this. Well, that's all well and good that Jesus died many years ago to reconcile his people to God, and that's all well and good that that redemption has been accomplished in the finished work of Christ, but how does this accomplished redemption have continued effects in the present? And to be more personal and individual, what does any of this have to do with me and my own personal need for redemption? Well, these questions, the Heidelberg Catechism begins to answer with this Lord's Day. If we are very familiar with the Heidelberg Catechism, and most of us are, we tend to look at Lord's Day 7 as the Lord's Day on true faith. But it's actually much broader than that. This is the Lord's Day that teaches how redemption accomplished becomes redemption applied. What Jesus accomplished in the past He applies in the present to his people by sending the Spirit. The Spirit who gives to us in the real time and space of our lives a new identity and a new confidence and and a new life so that we become new creatures in Jesus Christ. And that is the theme of the sermon this morning, New Creatures In Jesus Christ. First, we will see how the Spirit of Jesus Christ gives us this new identity, namely by engrafting us into Christ. And then, secondly, how being engrafted into Christ, we have a new confidence that is a true and living faith. And then, finally, how that new confidence leads into a new life that is the Christian life as the new creatures in Christ. So the theme of the sermon, new creatures in Jesus Christ. First, a new identity. Secondly, a new confidence. And then finally, a new life. Well, the first and most important conviction of the Christian faith is that Jesus Christ, who died a long time ago, is alive and well today. If Jesus Christ is not alive and well today, then there is and can be no redemption accomplished 
If Jesus Christ is not alive and well today, then there is only the failure of the cross and there is only defeat for the Christian. If Jesus Christ is not alive and well today, there is no such thing as redemption applied either. And that is because if Jesus Christ is not alive and well today, there is no redemption at all to speak of. There are only the bones of a man who claimed to be the Christ, but who perished like other men. Those who claim to be followers of Jesus, but who deny that Jesus is alive, are not Christians, you see. Those who say that Jesus was just a good man, who taught some good things about love, but who deny that he is risen from the dead in glory and ascended to the right hand of God on high, these are not Christians. They are humanists and unbelievers, disguised perhaps as Christians, but they're not Christians. That Jesus Christ is alive today is fundamental and crucial is because we can only be engrafted into a living Jesus. We can only be engrafted into a living Jesus. This is the definition of salvation according to our Lord's Day. In question and answer 20, salvation, the question is, are all men then as they perish in Adam saved by Christ? No, not all men are saved, but then it gives really a definition of what we mean by salvation. Only those who are engrafted into him and receive all his benefits by true faith. That's what it means to be saved by Christ. It is to be engrafted into him and to receive all his benefits by a true faith. It is to be so united to Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit that you can say, I am in Christ, as the Apostle declares in verse 17 of the chapter we read. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. This is where that illustration of the vine and its branches is so beautifully helpful The living, resurrected, and ascended Jesus Christ is likened in the Bible to a vine. When your parents go home this afternoon, maybe you can pull up a picture of a grapevine for your children to look at. Well, Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, his disciples, remember, who lived in the land of Canaan, where grapevines were plentiful, and they knew exactly what grapevines looked like. But Jesus said to his disciples, I am the vine. And the important thing about the vine is that the vine is the source of all of the life that is in the whole plant. And the important thing about a vine also is that the vine, or the trunk, is the central part of that plant that gives to that plant its identity and its name. Well, Jesus says, I am the vine. Those for whom Jesus died... On the other hand, and to whom he sends his spirit are the branches that are part of this vine. The important thing about the branches is that they are connected to the vine and that they have their life out of the vine. And living out of that vine, they also bear the fruit of grapes, which then can be gathered in. Well, the Lord's Day says the people of God, those who are saved by Christ, 
are branches in the vine. That is Jesus Christ. If you do look at grapevines and maybe read a little bit about what engrafting is, you will come across this idea. Engrafting is when you take a vine from a different plant, from a different grapevine, and then you maybe shed some of the bark of a new vine and you place the green end of this branch from a different plant next to that trunk and you bind it around and then after a while that vine is going to enter into that branch and is going to pull that branch into itself so that that branch that is not original to this vine, nevertheless becomes part of that vine, is engrafted into it and united to it. Well, the catechism has been showing us that we live in the midst of death, right? That's our misery. We are perished in Adam, according to question 20, which means we are deserving of death and not only deserving of death at the end of our lives, but we are in fact living in death. We are totally depraved so that we are unable to do any good and in fact inclined to all evil. You can think of us like dead twigs, dead branches lying on the ground, dry and cracking, good for nothing but firewood. But then something amazing happens. The living Jesus Christ, who stands at the right hand of God, seeks us out and finds us by the Holy Spirit whom he has poured out. He seeks us out particularly and individually. There are many other dried twigs lying on the ground, much like ourselves, that the Spirit of Jesus Christ passes over. But he finds us and he lays hold of us. And by a powerful act of God, he engrafts us, unites us into the vine, which is Jesus Christ. He has the right to do this. He has the right to do this because he is our Redeemer who purchased us. And you say, what an insane thing to do. Who would ever lay down valuables, money, in order to buy a bunch of dead, dry twigs? But that's what Jesus Christ did. He laid down his own life his lifeblood, in order to purchase these these dead people, these dead, dried twigs, and then he engrafts us into himself, unites us to himself by a spiritual union. He was, as our Redeemer, made sin for us, though he personally knew no sin, in order that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That was redemption accomplished, but then in the time and space of our lives, he actually draws us into himself. And there are all kinds of effects and blessings that come through this engrafting, this union. There is the beginning of a new life where this otherwise dead twig starts to become green and alive. And then as that twig becomes green, he begins to put forth leaves and eventually puts forth fruit. And so when somebody is engrafted into Jesus Christ, through that life that the Spirit plants in his heart, eventually there is faith. That is a true and living conscious faith. And out of that faith there are good works and there's a whole life 
a sanctification, and eventually entrance into glory itself. All these benefits that come through this union in Jesus Christ. But before we get there, we're going to talk about that a little bit more in the second point. In the third point, before we get to those benefits that come through this union, let's consider, first of all, what that union is or what it, what it does the first and immediate effect that it has on us. And that is that we are given a new identity. As branches who are taken and united to this vine, by that very fact, we are given a new identity. Now people today are almost obsessed with the concept of identity. We never talked about the word identity so much in the past, but now identity is talked about all the time in today's culture is trying to convince us that identity is something that we make for ourselves. Identity is something that we construct for ourselves. And this idea in the culture is very powerful. It's an idea that speaks especially to young people who are trying to find their place in life. I remember that myself. Even before it became trendy to talk about identity all of the time, I wanted to be part of a certain group of friends. I wanted to be thought of in a certain way by my peers. So I said to myself, well, this is what I'm going to be. I'm going to wear this kind of clothes. I'm going to use these kinds of words. I'm going to listen to this kind of music. I'm going to participate in this kind of activity, and so on and so forth. And I'm going to construct this identity for myself so that I will be accepted by this particular group that I'm interested in belonging to. There's a hunger in all of us to belong to something. And this whole concept of identity speaks into that that hunger and seems to give a path to acceptance and affirmation. Today's technology is allowing people to take this another step further. If a hundred years ago a man claimed that he was a woman, he would be dismissed. He would probably be regarded as out of his mind or mentally unstable. But today, due to advances in technology and the ability to perform surgeries, You can take enough pills and you can undergo enough surgery that in in a lot of people's minds, this idea of a man becoming a woman or a woman becoming a man starts to look plausible. And people start to say, well, maybe that really is the identity of this person. And why shouldn't he dress that way or why shouldn't she dress that way if that makes this person feel that they are being true to themselves? And that seems like a very empowering idea. I don't have to be what everybody else says I am. I don't even have to be what I was clearly born as. I can change. I can construct a new identity for myself. And I can so present this new identity, making use of the means at my disposal in a modern, technologically advanced society, 
that everybody else must accept that this is the real me. Or perhaps I can deceive them into believing that this is the real me. Well, this is a lie, of course. It's a lie. And it's not just a lie because it doesn't matter how advanced the technology is, it's still not going to be good enough to hide the truth. Everybody knows when a man is dressed up as a woman or a woman is dressed up as a man. But it's not just a lie on that level. This is a lie at its most basic assumption. The lie is that we can construct an identity for ourselves. The lie is that we can shape who we are and that we can be whatever we want to be. And that goes deeper than what we're seeing on the surface level right now, this transgender stuff that's going on. This is a lie that has been parroted for years and years by cartoons and songs and advertisements all throughout our culture. It's the message that you need to find yourself. You need to go on a journey of self-discovery. You need to be true to yourself. And what all of these slogans actually mean is, is... You need to make your own identity. What really it boils down to is you need to be your own God. You need to be the God of your own life, and that's how you're going to find acceptance and affirmation and all of this other stuff. By the way, there's a very helpful book on this topic called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by a man named Carl Truman. Maybe you've heard of it. Another uh, abridged version of that same book is called Strange New World. I mention that because I've read these books and they've been pretty influential in my own thinking on these topics. But if you'd like to explore that a little bit further, those are good resources. But it's a lie. This idea that we can make an identity for ourselves is a lie. The truth is, identity is something that's given to you. It's always something that's given to you from somebody else. That basic truth is evident from the moment we enter this world. What is one of the first things that happens to us when we enter into this world? Well, our parents give us a name. They have to give us a name because if they don't give us a name, then what are we? We're just a number. Or we're a thing without an identity, unclaimed. And that can't be. Even if modern parents who have bought into these notions of constructing your own identity give their children gender-neutral names or refuse to identify their child as male or female, these are real things that people are doing today, Even if modern parents try to do these things, they still cannot escape the fact that they are giving their child an identity. They're identifying their child with all of this ideology that they have embraced. The sad truth for those children is that they have wicked and cowardly parents who refuse to do what God is calling them to do, which is to rear their children so that their children understand who they are and how they stand in relation to their environment and in relation to the God who made them. But no parents can avoid giving their children an identity, and no person can avoid the fact that identity is something that's given to them, not something they construct. At an even deeper level, we all come into this world with an identity in our first father, Adam. It's the identity of death and corruption. It's the identity of sin and rebellion. And everything that we do 
with this identity, especially if we try to escape this identity somehow. Everything we do only confirms this is our identity. We are Adam's children. We're like him. We resemble him in every respect, choosing ourselves, choosing to be our own gods instead of receiving the truth from the hand of God. But the wonder of salvation, beloved, is that Jesus Christ gives us a new identity. We can't do that for ourselves. We can't change the fact that we are the children of Adam. But in His grace, Jesus Christ does. He gives us a new identity. Go back to that picture of engrafting. I said before, there are all kinds of benefits that come through this union that we have with Jesus Christ. We're given a new life and we begin to live in all good works. That's true. But take a step back for a moment and just think about this picture. If you walk through a vineyard and you see all of these grapevines, you're not going to say, oh, look at those branches over there. Oh, look at those leaves over there. Oh, look at those roots over there. At least that's not going to be the first thing that you say. The first thing you're going to say is, look at that vine. Look at that grapevine. What a beautiful grapevine. You see, all the parts, the leaves, the roots, the fruit, the branches become identified with the vine, with the whole. And so we, we talk about it that way. That's a vine. We see the branches, we see the leaves, we see the fruit, we see everything, but it's a vine. And that's how it works with this engrafting as well. God sees us as one vine, one plant with Jesus Christ. He doesn't say, oh, look at this branch over here and look at that branch over there so much. He does know us individually and personally. But what he says, first of all, is, look at my son. Look at my only begotten son, Jesus Christ, my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And he sees his son with all of these branches in him, with all of his people in that person and identified with them. That's that new identity. Our old identity in Adam was taken and it was given to Jesus Christ. And he was made to be sin for us who knew no sin. And with that identity, he went to the cross, had his blood shed, had the wrath of God poured out on him. And now, a new identity, because we are engrafted into him and into the fellowship of his suffering and into the fellowship of his resurrection, a new identity is given to us. We are made the righteousness of God in him. And so God looks at us in Jesus Christ, and he says, that person is righteous. I accept that person as measuring up to my standards and as belonging to me and, and into my covenant. It's a wonderful thing. Clearly, that's not something that we construct or make for ourselves. It's given to us. Just as Jacob had his name changed 
from Jacob the deceiver to Israel, the prince of God. So God says to us, I change your name. Fear not. I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine, he says in Isaiah 43. We're given a new identity through that engrafting into Christ. And the point of this is not just that we would have this new identity, but it is that we would know about it. And that knowing about it, we would find a new joy and a new confidence because of it. That brings us to the second point this morning. True faith is that new confidence that we have as those who have been given this new identity in Jesus Christ. That's what it is. Confidence is another word that is sometimes misconstrued by our culture or just by the way we use words. We think of confident people as those people who are bold and self-assured. Sometimes in a public place you come across a musical instrument like a piano. And most people are going to stay far away from that. But a confident person is somebody who's going to sit on the bench and he's going to start playing a beautiful song in that public space. And we think, wow, that person has a lot of confidence. Doesn't care what other people think. Well, sometimes that's a good thing. We need people who are confident that way, who will take risks and who will do bold things. And, of course, we love it when somebody sits down at one of those pianos and starts playing beautiful music. Some people are just wired that way. That's their personality. They have self-confidence. But the kind of confidence the Lord's Day is talking about here is not self-confidence. It's not a personality trait. You can be an insecure person and nevertheless have the confidence the Lord's Day is talking about here. And you can also be a person who's self-assured and has a lot of self-confidence and not have this confidence that the Lord's Day is talking about. The confidence of faith is, first of all, a gift from the Holy Spirit. It's something that the Lord's Day says, the Holy Ghost works by the gospel in my heart. That's question and answer 21. In other words, it doesn't come from me. It's not self-confidence. It's part of that stream of life that comes out of the vine that flows into me, the branch. But nevertheless, it's a gift that the Holy Spirit works in my heart, the Catechism says. So it's not something that I'm unaware of. It's not something that exists outside of my consciousness or my lived experience. No, it's confidence. It's an assured confidence which the Holy Ghost works in my heart. It's a confidence, in other words, that has a direct and immediate impact on the way that I live my life. Paul speaks of that in verse 6 when he says we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For, as in, why are we always confident? For we walk by faith and not by sight. That's important to recognize that this confident, confidence has a real impact on our conscious 
everyday experience because there are those who only want to speak of faith as something passive. Faith is something the Spirit does to us or something the Spirit does for us, but not really something that the Spirit does in us. Faith is the bond of engrafting to Christ, they say, but then they put a period there. The problem with that, though, is that that's not faith, not true faith. True faith is when the Holy Spirit works in us so that by faith we experience life and walk with the Lord in confidence. True faith is an assured confidence which the Holy Ghost works by the gospel in my heart so that we say this about ourselves, that not only to others but to me, to me also, salvation, righteousness, and everlasting life is freely given of God, merely of grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. That's not just something that happened a long time ago or something that God does outside of my experience, but it's right there in my heart. I know that. I'm embracing that. And it's changing the whole way I see and approach life. This is how Herman Hoeksema described it. Faith is that wonderful spiritual power whereby the soul strikes its roots into Christ to cling to Him, appropriate Him, and draw out of Him all the glorious blessings of salvation which are in Him. And then he goes on to say that faith is an activity which engages the entire soul with mind and will and all our desires and inclinations. Through faith, the whole soul fastens itself onto Christ. That's from his book, The Wonder of Grace. Confidence in who you are in Christ is not something that's passive. It involves your whole person, your whole soul. But notice that Herman Hoeksma also says that through faith, the soul fastens itself onto Christ. That's important because it shows us where our confidence comes from and what our confidence is in. This confidence has its object not in ourselves, not in our good works. It has its object in Christ. And I use that word object And maybe we've heard that before, and maybe it feels a bit confusing to us. But it just means that Christ is the person whom we are placing our confidence in. If you jump out of an airplane, the object of your confidence is going to be in your parachute. And just notice how that illustration works. It's not your confidence in the parachute as such that saves you. It's the parachute that saves you. But because you have a parachute and because you have confidence that that parachute is going to open up and it's going to slow your descent to the earth, you are going to be willing to jump out of an airplane, which you would never do if you did not have an object in which to place your confidence that you will be brought safely to the ground. So we need to understand that faith is a real and living activity. It gives us real confidence But that doesn't mean we are claiming that it is our faith as such that saves us. No, Christ saves us. 
Christ alone saves us by engrafting us into himself and making us new creatures by his spirit. Christ alone saves us by redeeming us, having been made sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. When we open our eyes in heaven one day, we're not going to be saying, oh, wow, I'm so thankful that I believed because it was my believing that got me here. No, we'll be saying, I'm so thankful for Jesus Christ who saved me. And part of that salvation was that he gave me faith. And that's why the Lord's Day doesn't simply say faith is confidence. It is. It's confidence. But before it's confidence, it's knowledge, isn't it? It's a certain knowledge, the Lord's Day says, whereby I hold for truth everything that God has revealed in his word. Now, if you stop there, you don't have faith. True faith is not mere head knowledge. There are people who believe the Bible is true, who believe that Jesus Christ is alive even today, and they hold these things for truth, and yet they live every day not by true faith that clings to Christ for redemption and salvation, but functionally they are trusting in themselves. That's the biblical definition of a hypocrite. A hypocrite is somebody who knows about Jesus Christ, who has the head knowledge, claims to trust in him, but really trusts in himself or herself. True faith is not mere knowledge. The Bible says knowledge puffs up if it is all by itself. Nevertheless, knowledge is important. Knowledge is fundamental even. It's fundamental if you are going to have any confidence Before you jump out of that airplane, what are you going to do? You're going to examine that parachute very carefully. You're going to be reading through the manual so you know exactly how it works. You're going to get some testimonials that speak to the authenticity of this parachute so that you know that when you are hurtling to the earth, that that parachute's not going to fail on you, but it's going to open up. So you need to know Jesus Christ. You need to know the doctrines of Jesus Christ. And you need to know the doctrines of the Bible. Not just so that you can have a head stuffed full of knowledge and can spout off the facts, but because you will not have the confidence of faith if you do not know what the faith says. That's why the Catechism says, the Holy Ghost works this confidence in our hearts by the gospel. That is, by the word of God, the word of reconciliation that Paul was going out as the ambassador of Christ proclaiming. Knowledge is the food and water that gives strength and vibrancy to the faith, which is why your confidence in the Lord will diminish and evaporate if you turn away from the knowledge of the Lord. Knowledge is the servant of confidence. Only when you know Jesus Christ and know what it means to be united to him will you have the confidence actually to live the new life of a new creature in Jesus Christ. Before I get to that new life, I just want to ask us the question for our consideration and examination, beloved. 
Do you see this? Do we see this? Do we see how this connects and how all of these things in Lord's Day 7 work together? Christ died a long time ago to redeem us, mission accomplished. Then He reached out by His Spirit and laid hold of us and engrafted us into Jesus Christ and gave us that new identity and that new name. Then by the same Spirit, He goes to work in us so that we know Him and so that we have the confidence that He is for us. And then He feeds that confidence through the Gospel. Do we know that? Do we see the connections there and the importance of all of those moving parts? I ask the question because there's always a temptation, I think, to skip ahead. To skip ahead of some of that. So that we can just get to the, what we think is the good part. Oh, I don't want to hear about all this doctrine. I don't want to hear about all of these words that take a lot of mental effort to process and understand it. And that take study. Just tell me how to live. Just tell me how the principles of the Christian life work out in these practical situations of my life. Now, that's all fine. We need those practical applications. We do need that. What if you skip ahead and ignore what's here? The truth of our identity and all of the doctrine that feeds this confidence of that new identity. And you skip ahead right to the, what we call the good stuff you're going to become a Pharisee. That will be the practical outworking of that spirit and that attitude. Because then you will not be looking at the Christian life by way of Christ and by way of your identity in Jesus Christ. But you will be approaching it through some other way. We need to understand who and what we are as new creatures in Jesus Christ. And then it is as new creatures in Jesus Christ that we will live that new life. We will. That new life begins not necessarily where we think it does or imagine that it does. I don't know, beloved, and I... I speak not just for you, I speak for myself here, but I don't know if we even realize how impatient we are. Some of this is human nature. Human beings are inherently impatient and restless. But I think we also live in a time and a place where impatience is the flavor of the day. If we send out a message with our phone... We expect a reply, and we expect it now. If we make a decision, we expect results, and we expect them now. And that spirit of impatience that is alive and well in the world around us can enter into the church, too. What do we want? Change. When do we want it? 
now. We want to do stuff. We want to do big things. Things that have immediate and noticeable effects. And when something gets in the way of those big changes, we get frustrated. Maybe we become disgruntled. But the new life of a Christian is not usually in the big or the bold or the immediate. If you are an impatient person, you are going to have a difficult time with the Christian life. The Christian life is in the small things. Christian life is in the steady things, the things that take time to grow and develop and mature. Christian life is in the things that the people of the world are not impressed with, not in the least, and that human nature is not impressed with. The new life of a Christian really boils down just to this, that we confess that Jesus Christ is our Lord. Now, it's that weighty. It's that heavy. If you confess that Jesus Christ is your Lord, you are confessing that he owns you. Body and soul, he owns you. If you confess that Jesus Christ is your Lord, you revoke all the rights you have over yourself, including the right to construct your own identity. I'm not my own, is what you say if you confess Jesus Christ, but I belong to my faithful Savior, whom I recognize as my Redeemer. It's that weighty, it's that all-encompassing, but it's also that simple, beloved. Anyone can make this confession. Now, I know that's not true in the ultimate sense. God is sovereign over who believes and over who perishes. Not all men who are perished in Adam are saved by Christ. But the point I'm making here is that God is not a respecter of persons. It doesn't matter if you are a man or a woman. It doesn't matter if you are black or white. It doesn't matter if you are rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you are high status or low status. It doesn't matter what kinds of evil things you have done or thought or said in the course of your life. This is the beginning of new life that is in Christ for all kinds of people. When you say this, I believe. I believe. I do. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth. I believe that the eternal God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who of nothing made heaven and earth, is my God and my Father through Jesus Christ, His Son. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe that when Jesus Christ was born and when he lived and suffered and died and rose again, that he did that knowing me and for me because he loved me. I believe in the Holy Spirit and I believe that when this Holy Spirit was poured out by Jesus Christ on Pentecost, that that Holy Spirit has come to me and that he lives within me and makes me a new creature in Jesus Christ. That's it. Beloved, that's it. Now, of course, if you believe these things, you're going to act a certain way, aren't you? If you really believe these things, 
that we confess in the Apostles' Creed, which are the articles of our faith, but we're going to act a certain way. If you believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord, your Redeemer, everything to you, and you know who this Jesus Christ is and what kind of person he is, how he laid his life down for you and showed the love of God to you by his sacrifice, if you believe that and confess that you believe that with your mouth, well, then you're going to start walking in his footsteps. You will. The Word of God calls you to it, says we must, but I'm also certain if you believe in him, you will. Your mind, your heart, your soul, it's going to be changed from the inside. And what's on the inside always comes out in our life. Because if you are in Jesus Christ, you are a new creature. All things are made new for you. And the old things pass away. Believe that, beloved. Believe in Jesus Christ. Believe that God identifies you with him. That you are one plant with him. That when he looks at you, he sees you in Christ. And believing that and knowing that, have the confidence that there is nothing in life that can ultimately harm you. There is nothing in life that can result in your condemnation or separation from this Jesus Christ who gave his life for you. And with that confidence, live as a Christian. Follow in the footsteps of your Lord who means everything to you. Walk as one who has been called by his name, as new creatures in Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank thee for giving us a true and living faith whereby we know ourselves in Christ and have the confidence that we are new creatures, not made for this world that perishes, but made for a new world. And we pray that in that confidence of faith, we will also live new lives in Jesus Christ, living not for ourselves, but for our Lord and for Thee, our God, and for one another as our brothers and sisters and fellow heirs of life eternal. Transform us, O Father, from the inside out and lead us into that way of life everlasting by faith in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray.